Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. You want to have some volatility for the asset class to grow. I think it's a, it's a feature, it, it's not a bug. But of course, it doesn't fit all the investors' profile out there, uh, for sure. And the risk needs to be clearly you know, declared and explained. Uh, but I think it's an important feature as the asset class is growing. So the main problem right now, which we're also trying to solve with the regulators, is the um, non-existence. I'm talking about non-existence of pure decentralized finance entities meaning that there isn't any um, uh, intermediary in between that actually controls the funds and so on. And if there isn't a a central intermediary, then what is the best way to uh, regulate them? Good morning uh, from Beijing, China. Uh, My name is Emmanuel Daniel. I'm the founder of The Asian Banker, uh, and I welcome all of you uh, from a wide variety of countries joining us today uh, on this masterclass called uh, Building Trust Compliance KYC into Crypto and Decentralized Finance. Uh, That's an amazing uh, uh, set of words. It sounds very technical and it might be frightening to some of you. So we, we added the word masterclass. Uh, because uh, we want this also to be a primer uh, for uh, those of you uh, who are new uh, to the whole idea of the back end of cryptos, uh, how the different crypto organizations are working with uh, the regulators uh, and the mechanics itself. Um, you know, what is it that we're looking at when we talk about cryptos, when we talk about stable coins, uh, and when we talk about CBDCs, uh, the whole range of it. I am very, very excited uh, to have with us Eric Enziani, the uh, Chief Operating Officer of Crypto.com. All of us have been hearing about Crypto.com from around the world right now, Eric. So we are very, very happy to have you join us. So we've got a lot of questions uh, for you uh, about Crypto.com, what you do, uh, your business model and all of that. And we also have uh, someone very important, uh, Anson Ziel who is an amazing uh, activist, as you would, uh, you know, as I would call him, uh, who has been um, putting together uh, global associations uh, that uh, work with regulators and bring all of the different uh, crypto players together. So he's well into the mechanics of working with regulators uh, in building the infrastructure that uh, we need to support, um, you know, um, uh, the, the crypto industry. And so Anson is actually the... Uh, co-founder of uh, IDEXA uh, and Access. Anson, thank you very much for joining us. Let's start uh, this conversation uh, by, uh, by asking firstly, um, uh, you know, our two uh, amazing guests uh, and, and, and my friends, uh, uh, you know, to explain what they do, okay? And give us a perspective of where the industry is right now. Now, I ask this question uh, because when we think about how the internet evolved, um, there were points in the history of the internet where you can say it's a, it's a milestone, a marker. The point in about 2008 when the internet had a billion users worldwide. Um, you know, the point at uh, 2011 where um, the mobile device became prevalent. It became the most uh, important device in many countries and so on. Now, uh, where are we uh, with uh, uh, the crypto universe? 
Um, and also tell us a little bit about your organization. So let's start with Eric. Sure. Uh, I think uh, we're, we're not at a 1 billion user mark yet on the crypto space, but we've made a tremendous, tremendous progress in terms of uh, uh, making the, the technology more mainstream. If I look at uh, the work from our research team, at the beginning of the year, uh, we had about 100 million users globally uh, owning or, or using crypto. Uh, in mid-year, we had about 220 million users, um, so uh, almost double in six months, and, and we'll probably hit 300 million users uh, by the end of the year. So tremendous growth in the space, uh, but still a lot to go. Um, one of the big use cases we see that will definitely help the space grow is things that are happening around gaming and GameFi, where blockchain and, and games are start to connect. Uh, and we all know the, the gaming industry has 3 billion users globally. Uh, so it's going to be a big driver uh, of the next wave of growth for, for the industry. But if I step back and talk a little bit about uh, crypto.com, just to describe it to, uh, to the audience, uh, to, today we're the, the world's fastest growing and regulated crypto platform. Uh, we serve more than 10 million users, and we really try to address all their crypto needs, whether uh, they're trying to buy crypto with traditional money, they want to spend it with our uh, Visa card at, at the shop online or offline, um, or they're just trying to grow their assets. Uh, and our, our mission is really to really accelerate the world's transition to using uh, cryptocurrency and, and to bring it to you know, one, two, three, five billion users globally in the next 10 years. Um, so we, we really want to leverage that technology that you, you're talking about, uh, blockchain, as well as the, the cryptocurrency that are built upon it. So we can help build what we aim for, which is a more fair and a more equitable world, especially for you know, all the creators, developers, and the, the users out there. Um, so we can give them the benefit of that technology in terms of true ownership of their asset and in general, better control over their money, data, and identity. Now, in terms of product sets, uh, you know, uh, which product sets does Crypto.com operate in? Uh, you know, an exchange. Uh, you have your own token as well, uh, and and then uh, you know, and downstream, what are some of the and upstream, what are some of the activities that you do? Yeah, we operate in, in quite a few markets today. So depending on the market, the, the product offering is is different. But uh, I think we're really the first, the entry point. So anyone who wants to get their first Bitcoin or, or, or Ethereum or any crypto using a debit card or using a bank transfer or any digital wallets that is relevant in their country, we enable that. Um, so we offer today, you know, depending on the market, from 100 to 200 uh, cryptocurrencies for people to get access to buy and sell. I think that's the, one of our, you know, the entry use case for most people in the space. We also allow them to spend these cryptocurrency using a, a Visa card. Uh, that is accepted as, as at more than 70 million merchants globally. Uh, so it's a beautifully designed metal card with great benefits, cashback, free Spotify, free Netflix, uh, that way you can sell your crypto and, and use it for your day-to-day -day needs. Uh, so those are like the two, two major use cases that people come in into the space. Uh, we also have an NFT platform, for example, for people who like to collect uh, you know, digital uh, assets uh, and, and representation of art or music, uh, uh, and, and we have that available for them to uh, get introduced into the space and, and start uh, connecting with creators and, 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 and memorabilia. Yeah. 
One question that we want to discuss here uh, with regards to regulation and so on, which, um, which is very relevant to you as an organization, crypto.com. Where in the world are you domiciled? Uh, you know, the, the whole question of domicile is up in the air. Um, I've visited a crypto processing center in Nanjing, and they were the first people who told me about uh, Binance and, and CZ. Uh, and then I was thinking that hmm, maybe all the processing is done out of here in, in Nanjing, uh, you know, for, crypt, uh, for, for Binance. Uh, and then there's crypto.com where uh, when you bought into the the naming rights for uh, you know the uh, uh, Staples, uh, Staples, yeah. Staples Stadium in, in Los Angeles, uh, Financial Times said you're a Singapore-based company. And then when I checked up your website, uh, all of you are living out of Hong Kong. So uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, domicile. Sure. Um- we, we've grown quite a bit. Uh, we, we started in, in Hong Kong in the early days in 2016. Today, we, we're a global company. We have 3,000 employees uh, across the globe, and we are uh, and working towards being regulated in all the key markets that we operate. And to be able to do so, you need to have offices in all markets uh, where you want to get a license. You need to have hearts and minds in those markets, have compliance officers, have uh, local GMs or MLRO. Uh, to support your business locally. Uh, Singapore has always been extremely close to to my heart. My heart also personally, I spent many years there uh, and I still go there very often. Um, As It was the first market where we launched our card product, which is really the the flagship product of crypto.com. And and today we have a very uh, strategic focus on Singapore and and we have a lot uh, of our setup there and we're growing very rapidly. I'd like to interject here, even for for Coinbase, that you listed. Uh, yeah. You can see that on their documents, they also listed uh, on the global address as non-applicable as well. So a lot of things are moving in that direction because when you're on the internet, everything is borderless, but we still need to abide by the rules in the different jurisdictions. Yeah, actually, that's a very interesting point you brought up, uh, Anson, because you're saying that when uh, Coinbase listed in the US, uh, in their SEC filing documents, they, they stated their address as non-applicable. Can you imagine that? Uh, you know, and, and it was accepted by the SEC. So actually, this whole question of domicile, uh, domicile is a very, very interesting uh, element of uh, crypto players worldwide. And maybe, Anson, you can, uh, I wanted you to explain a little bit of what you do at Access uh, and Adexa. In terms of leveraging uh, regular, regulators in the different markets, uh, is there a regulatory arbitrage taking place right now? The regulators themselves are sort of uh, looking over each other's shoulders uh, and saying, okay, you know, at which point do we enter? How do we play this game? You know, is there something called regulatory arbitrage that some, when you are when you are accepted by one regulator, the other regulator sees you more favorably, stuff like that? So the regulatory arbitrage nature now is definitely very different compared to five years ago. So, for example, five years ago uh, for the crypto companies, a lot of uh, the regulators actually don't know much about what what cryptos, what what they're doing. So there's a knowledge gap for most regulators. So they're saying they're treating them as as another normal company. And then they come in uh, into that country, but only to find out more about them than they understand what crypto companies are. So our first phase was a knowledge gap. So allowing them to come in and then fear started setting in. And then um, the industry comes together to work and engage with the regulators. And now we have 
arbitrage in the sense where there are some regulators that are super far ahead from others. So you're working with them, not because the regulatory arbitrage is to take advantage of the, the situation compared to like before. Now it's, we're working with regulators that know the stuff and there are some that are super left behind. So you will reach a stage a few years later that every uh, regulator should know uh, how to deal with um, the uh, uh, regulation, but definitely the crypto industry is trying to work with regulators where, uh, where possible right now. Actually, so nature has changed a lot. Actually, Anson, at this point, tell me about um, IDEXA and Access. What do you do? Uh, and who have you been working with? Yeah, Access is uh, the association that I chair. It's uh, Association of Cryptocurrency Enterprises Singapore. So we've been established since uh, May 2014. So back then, when we spoke to MAS um, as a number of our startups together, they felt we were just a gaming association, gaming geeks coming together. But we were actually trying to um, show them the advantages back then of Bitcoin and blockchain. But now uh, we've evolved into a um, uh, association where we have quite a lot of expertise in understanding global regulatory uh, issues and challenges. We've also worked with uh, MES on uh, code of practice uh, with very big help from crypto.com uh, on the AML and CFT processes that most of the, uh, that all of the um, licensed VAS uh, should be doing. Uh, and then it also gives the stakeholders such as MES and other regulators and the banks to know that many of these companies do have a process when, do, uh, when, when uh, doing AML KYC. Now, IDEXA was formed in uh, 2019. It was more of a response of what FedF uh, Financial Action Task Force has issued back in 2019, a set of virtual asset guidelines. So FedF calls it virtual asset, but essentially it's crypto. Okay. So these guidelines, uh, some of the recommendations were quite strict and it was uh, quite a problem. And the problem is when we speak as uh, um, Singapore, Access Singapore, we don't have such a strong voice. Crypto Valley Switzerland doesn't have a strong voice on its own. So we decided if we all come together as one voice uh, under IDEXA, under one umbrella, it will speak on the same level as government entities such as OECD, FedEx, uh, and, and so on. So IDEXA is a, um, a, a united voice of all the um, majority of the crypto associations around the world with the support of very large um, uh, crypto companies. So some of our associations include Crypto Valley, Switzerland, uh, support from uh, the Japanese associations, uh, JVCEA, JBA. Uh, we also have uh, partners with uh, Global Digital Finance, Chamber of Digital Commerce, Washington, Crypto United Kingdom, Crypto UK, blockchain Australia, Indonesia, and, and so on. So all when we come together, we form a much uh, stronger voice. So we have a platform uh, called uh, V20, which we hosted in uh, 2019, 2020. We'll have a huge one, in, uh, hopefully, when, if COVID allows, in, um, in Bali for, for next year, uh, at the G20 in, um, in Bali. And the issues we, um, we discuss is of DeFi, uh, NFT, the definitions and how to go about it and so on. But most importantly, this is a platform for regulators to come to speak to the private sector. So it's not like a panelist of, uh, uh, um, sort of session where everybody just comes to talk. We're here to solve issues at the conference and come up with findings for, uh, for both the regulators and the private sector.
Now, one of the reasons I wanted wanted to talk to you on a program like this is uh, precisely because you talk to FATF. When when they say virtual assets, uh, let me ask you this question: Does virtual assets also include CBDC? For now, FATF has um, already got the instructions from G uh, G20 that the scope does not, in, the, in terms of AML CFD, does not include CBDCs. But own, uh, the scope is for so-called stable coins and uh, and the uh, service providers. So CBDC, uh, in my view, should also be within the purview because there's a lot of um, commonalities with, uh, the, as they say, so-called stable coins. Uh, but it's not in the scope of, of the uh, of the guidance. I'm just curious that that FATF is not wrapping its mind around CBDCs yet, uh, and it has been excluded uh, from FATF, although it's part of BIS. Uh, and other agencies uh, that are that are trying to create that global element in there. In terms of uh, IDEXA, some of the topics that you're working with FATF on, um, one of the biggest thing is uh, interoperability. For example, uh, you know between um, um, between tokens, uh, is there a kind of a standards coming out uh, in terms of? Um, something that all crypto um, players subscribe to that FATF can can look at in the uh, V20 conference, which we held in uh, which was held in Osaka uh, in 2019, uh, alongside the G20 uh, leaders conference. Uh, we uh, the main aim for that conference was to discuss the first guidelines that came out, and one of the most the stickiest point in the guidelines from FATF was the uh, recommendation 16 which in the banking world is known as uh, the travel rule. And uh, crypto.com was also uh, um, um, attendee at the, at the conference uh, as well. So why is this sticky? Because banks, um, they have to fulfill certain rules in order to use the SWIFT system to uh, send funds uh, uh, cross borders, right? If you don't fulfill all the, uh, all the um, compliance uh, needed, you're not allowed to use the international banking system and your banks will, your, the funds will only be stuck locally. Whereas in crypto, from day one, we are able to send funds with regardless to who you're sending it to, right? Good and bad, of course. And, and because of that, when 2019, the guidance came in uh, for us, uh, in a way, so, uh, so-called forced upon us, we need to find a way on how to, one, continue sending, yet be able to share the uh, uh, MLTF, money laundering, terrorist financing information, if there is, um, uh, to the regulators as well, sharing between the intermediaries. So um, when I was at Vienna speaking, uh, speaking at the uh, FedEx private consultation, uh, uh, private consultative forum, um, I made the point that uh, that it was important that we, we find a way, but uh, find a way to do it. But we also need to be mindful because it's so decentralized um, different companies will do things differently. So for example, if uh, crypto.com uses compliance software A, Coinbase uses compliance software B, if they don't have a common way of communicating, then, then there's no point, it, it doesn't work. So we can um, work with um, different associations, um, uh, co-led with uh, Chamber of Digital Commerce Washington, as well as Global Digital Finance, which is based out in London, to come up with a standard called Intervast Messaging Standard. IVS, IVMS 101, which is the data model for these compliance um, softwares to use so that once they have a, a standard data model, then at least from that standpoint, they can communicate with uh, each other. And FedF knows about this and has written 
not obviously not saying the name, uh, but have uh, uh, written um, um, indirect, indirectly hinting there is standards already work, uh, work from the private sector. So yes, it's coming up. And if there are more standards that are needed that when, um, when the regulators want to see or when the private sector wants to do it, we will continue to work on that as well. Eric, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I, I realized when I saw your numbers, right, crypto.com, uh, annual revenue of 55 million, total funding of 36.8 million to date, 3,000 employees, 10 million users. How in the world did you afford to be able to pay $700 million to rename the Los Angeles Staples Center? I'm asking this as a conceptual question, right? So give us an idea of how your business is run. We've been very fortunate to have a a very strong and supportive community, and we've built a a very large-scale business today. Um, If you look, for example, uh, our exchange business globally, we we process $4 or $5 billion per day of volume, and we have multiple uh, very, very strong at-scale products in our ecosystem that that, generate revenues for us. So we're able to reinvest uh, into growth, into new business line, and, and to help the industry uh, go mainstream. I think it's very important for you know, us as, as crypto.com, as our name um, you know, is kind of the category to support the industry forward. Um, we are at the stage where this space is growing very fast, and that's why we're investing aggressively to help that growth uh, and, and help the industry move forward, not only from a you know, marketing standpoint, but also from a standard and compliance standpoint. Um, you know, when, when we started our business, there's two foundational pillars uh, five years ago. One was compliance. The second one was security. And we've invested in both massively and will continue to do so. Uh, our view is that the industry would be regulated uh, fully. Uh, so we started from that concept. We KYC'd and, and put ML in place for our entire set of customers from day one. Uh, we worked with regulators across the globe and have been able already to acquire many licenses uh, in key jurisdictions. We also work with all the international bodies to have the top certifications on cybersecurity, on data privacy, um, whether it's ISO, whether it's PCI DSS, whether it's working with the Chamber of Commerce with their NIST certification in the US. Uh, so we invested a lot in that space to make sure we have a, a robust foundation to help the industry go forward and for our business to last. So when you, when you talk about income streams, uh, and you know which ones are are strong in income streams right now, um, you know. And you know one of the things that fascinates me about crypto, and I'm a big fan, is because I walk into the offices of blockchain players uh, who are creating supply chain uh, architectures and so on with a token in it. Um, you know, and I mean, real things are happening, right? Uh, and then I come across uh, people who trade daily, uh, you know, lending uh, on, on their token and so on. So of all the activities, uh, which ones are strong revenue generators for you today that shows the depth of the industry? I would say today the industry is primarily driven in terms of activity by the trading use case, I think, followed by payment use case. Those are, I think, the two major use cases we're seeing. And that's normal for a new asset class. NFT and gaming, those are the emerging ones. And I think the revenue from these business lines will be tremendous uh, in the future. But today is primarily around trading and payments. And payments is country specific. Um, you know, there are countries and regions where uh, crypto payments is 
uh, you know, really substantial? Um, you know, is that is that the case, or is that global, um, or is there a lot of payments already taking place uh, in in traditional countries, Japan, Singapore, um, you know, US? I think for us, there's two types of, of payment rails. One is when we work with Visa, and so we use the traditional fiat rails, and we enable people to spend their crypto uh, using that rail. Uh, and for that, it really depends on where we're available. Um, so we, we started our journey in Singapore, then you know across Asia, we launched our own program in Australia. Uh, we cover 30 plus market in Europe and the UK. And we're in the US, we're in Canada, and we just launched in Brazil. So wherever our card product is available, we're able to see that, that strong demand. And, and today we have about 70, 80% market share in the crypto card business. So we've invested significantly in that part and we see tremendous growth. Whether the market goes up and down, people love the product and they, they love to have the ability to use these assets, which are virtual in nature, uh, in the real world. I think it's very important. It brings peace of mind. You, you can at any time use those assets for, for you know, goods and services. Uh, so that's very powerful across the globe. Actually, your relationship with Visa um, you know, blows my mind because this is like sleeping with the enemy. The, you know, this, this is like uh, the organization that uh, should be spoken of in past tense by now. Uh, you know, and yet they seem to be um, wrapping themselves around crypto. So explain to me a little bit about that relationship you have with Visa. Sure. What is this rail? I mean, you know, uh, is it just simply using the traditional rails and putting crypto on it so that you can use crypto on a transaction? The back end might well be good old fashioned fiat money, right? So tell me a yeah. little bit about the relationship with Visa. No, that, that is correct. And, and it's been, we've been working with Visa for, for five years now. Uh, and the last uh, few months, we elevated our, our partnership. We, we became a global alliance partner with Visa and also got the ability to issue our cards directly. So we're a principal member of the Visa network. I think it, it's very important when you look at bringing a technology to the mainstream to work with instruments that people are familiar with, especially in the payment space. And you know, using your debit or credit cards uh, is it, still extremely powerful and understood by most people across the globe. And I think it's a very strong entry point to get people into the space. Uh, we are also developing our own native payment solution called Crypto.com Pay, which is uh, more like the, you know, the Alipay of the world where you have to scan a QR code and you can pay natively in, in crypto directly to uh, a, a merchants across the globe. Uh, that will take you know, decades to build, but it's also very important uh, business that we're developing across the globe uh, to, to ensure we, we can offer both that native experience in crypto, but also something familiar to bring people uh, into the industry. Now, at which point do you think such a model will start to um, you know, disintegrate because, the, because the, the direct crypto transactions become mainstream? Uh, at which point do you think it will start to you know, um, uh, you know, go down? Uh, because uh, uh, what you're saying is an interim measure because you're, you're using platforms which are familiar with people. At which point do you think you can, you know, wean off uh, relationships like, um, uh, you know, the visa because the back end is old fashioned? Yeah, I, I don't think it's uh, it's something that will happen in the short term. Um, to 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 be honest, uh, the space is still small. It's still very nascent. There's so much space to grow. And we're keen to work with you know, all partners like Visa to, to grow the industry forward. Um, so I, I don't see that 
you know, happening in the short term. I don't think also there will be just pure cryptocurrency uh, out there in the world. There will be still fiat in countries. There will be CBDCs. There will be other forms of, of money out there. Uh, it's just not one, uh, you know, currency that will dominate everything. Um, so we, we right. want to create a world where people have options. They can benefit uh, from uh, the utility of these different options and, and be able to use whatever makes sense for them in their country, in their journey. Now, when I think about your rebranding the LA, um, you know, Staples Stadium, um, you're spending money that a Coinbase would be spending, uh, you know, uh, in that the funding that Coinbase has is so much bigger and so on. Uh, is there a business model in there uh, that this money needs to be spent in order to maybe generate visibility, um, you know, the, the justification? The, the renaming of the stadium is, is one initiative out of few. You know, we also partners with, um, you know, big brands like Formula One or UFC or 76ers and you know, PSG and then other, uh, you know, football leagues uh, across the globe. Really, our, our goal is to bring the technology mainstream because we believe it has very important benefits for individuals as well as you know, creators and, and, and participants uh, in that ecosystem. So we want to bring the technology mainstream. To do that, we need to communicate to a broad set of users uh, about you know, what is the industry about, what's the value proposition, and, and how we can improve their lives. And working with top sports brand and, and you know, visible entities like AEG and, and, and the um, you know, the crypto.com arena today, um, renaming, is critical to that. Uh, and we've seen the receptions uh, from, from customers, the feedback, uh, and the coverage that we get really makes the technology mainstream. Uh, it, it, and I think it's very important to drive awareness. Uh, and so we can grow the space responsibly and get people to understand and educate themselves about, you know, cryptocurrency, blockchain, even CBDC, what, what is it about? How can he improve you know, my day-to-day -day life? Now, let me ask Anson the same question that I've asked uh, Eric, which is uh, which products are becoming uh, you know, popular and potentially mainstream that there's enough traction in there? Um, you know, I know that, uh, Eric, you, you're an active trader, for example, uh, on the lending, platform, uh, lending tokens. Um, how big is that? Um, and, and which products... Uh, you know, actually mimic banking on a token or, or, or exchanges on a token? Um, and how important are these uh, for applications that are being developed? But I'm asking all these questions because um, there are regulators and former regulators uh, around the world uh, who are saying things like, oh, you know, crypto is it's, it's like uh, it's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's a wasted asset. It's it's not even an asset. It's, uh, you know, and they don't say that about gold, by the way. Gold is a piece of metal, you know, uh, an unusable piece of metal, where else uh, tokens are, uh, are actively being uh, used to create ecosystems and so on. So just give us a sense of uh, which are the most active areas um, and, uh, and what are some of the issues, the problems that they have uh, in becoming more mainstream? Yes, sure. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, myself, I'm very active user for the different uh, DeFi products, uh, decentralized finance products, which I'll go on um, a little bit later uh, for two reasons. One is for myself to understand what is going on. And two, once you start understanding, you realize how they're doing it to allow that sort of, in a way, uh, uh, return, uh, rewards, returns that you can get from the uh, ecosystem. So that there's a lot of different uh, products um, out there that uh, 
um, in a way mimics some of the banking products. But the one of the first um, narratives, um, most important, is the uh, the narrative of inflation. So because of inflation, as we know, um, uh, U.S. just hit a 31-year high inflation. That hits a very good narrative uh, for for Bitcoin, for example. A few months ago, there was a um, report published by um, uh, by Coinbase, or they, maybe it was on the Twitter of uh, Brian Armstrong. If uh, on the Google Trends, uh, the searches for Bitcoin has exceeded gold. Basically, people are more interested in Bitcoin than gold. It, uh, gold itself, because of the, uh, the inflation story. So one is to um, hedge uh, uh, against inflation. That's uh, one of them. And in a way, it derives from this as well. So some of the products uh, that they have is similar to savings uh, products, but has a higher um, uh, interest uh, percentage in return. So you put, uh, uh, leave some cryptos there, you will have a higher percentage, not only just normal cryptos, uh, stable coins as well. Uh, there's also uh, products into uh, uh, lending, uh, products as uh, uh, um, borrowing, collateral, uh, a lot of different things are from the banking industry. And I, I, I am very confident that a lot of bankers also moved into this industry uh, to, and seeing how, how, how lucrative it is. So the main problem right now, which we're also trying to solve with the regulators, is the um, non-existence, I'm talking about non-existence of pure decentralized finance entities, meaning that there isn't a, any um, uh, intermediary in between that actually controls the funds and so on. And if there isn't a, cent a central intermediary, then what is the best way to uh, regulate them? Uh, FedEx has, has um, basically hinted in their reports that they also don't have the experience to regulate non-entities uh, in, in the space because the, uh, since the 80s, come, uh, since the 80s, they've existed They've all been around uh, regulating intermediaries. But if there isn't one, how do you do it? Uh, they've tried to go the extreme, which had a backlash in my view, uh, of trying to regulate every single user that uses uh, DeFi. Uh, for example, uh, they had a point in, in, um, that if you own a particular token that um, use, um, uh, has these sort of functions, uh, then you'll be regulated. But some of the exchange, uh, some of the um, tokens, such as uh, Uniswap and many others, if you own a token, you also have a vote in the system. So does it mean you're going to regulate every single user? And if you do, how are you going to enforce? So there's a lot of these issues that we're going, um, we're trying to solve. And hence, the coming V20, uh, we're going to do like a very workshop-like thing, like in 2019, and see if there's something we can come up with. What sort of uh, conclusions we can come up from that V20? Uh, on how to regulate this uh, um, whole industry uh, properly, but yet allowing it to grow and also in the interest of the, uh, the private sector as well. In fact, the managing director of the MAS, uh, Ravi Menon, was uh, quoted saying, regulation must not front-run innovation, right? Um, and yet, every time regulators get into uh, wrapping their minds around uh, crypto, uh, they are front-running already. Uh, and the regulatory approach for different jurisdictions uh, uh, is bizarre. And so from what, what you're saying to me is very interesting because uh, when the FDIC, or rather when, when the US regulators um, say that table coins, for example, uh, should be regulated as a, um, as a depository institution, 
they actually opened the door up for cryptos to become banks, you know, and, and so you've allowed the crypto uh, world into your traditional world as a result. Um, and then uh, you have jurisdictions where uh, cryptocurrencies like crypto.com are now in a position to buy banks uh, to get the license. So you've got that, um, you know, model, um, you know, uh, possibly uh, coming into place. And, and also from what you're saying, Anson, is that um, when uh, the whole idea of being permissionless uh, is that uh, the node uh, has its own governance structure, right? Um, now, do, do the permissionless uh, cryptos, um, are, you know, are their governance structures sufficient as an, a regulator themselves? I mean, like, you know, is there a regulatory element in there? What I'm seeing now, at least from a user and with uh, uh, knowledge of what's going on in the, in the regulatory space, um, it is improving quite a lot. There are a lot of products out there um, uh, that, that, that do self-regulation. What I mean by self-regulation is not top-down where there is a set of rules. It's when there are new proposals or when things go wrong, the community comes together to solve it very, very quickly. Instead of going back and forth with, uh, with the regulator, uh, they, they actually come in um, and do it. And sometimes because they're not from the traditional world, there's a lot of um, innovation that comes in on how to uh, uh, solve these uh, self-regulatory issues. Um, I know also uh, Managing Director Ravi Menon did say that um, uh, he believes that regulatory uh, um, from top-down from the state uh, is, uh, is still substantially better uh, than, uh, than self-regulation. There's not exact lines, but it's around the, the, like the, the point of saying that state regulation is still better. I'm open on I'm open-minded on that. I'm not saying no or yes because there are a lot of things from our industry that actually um, influenced the traditional banking sector. If you look at from a KYC perspective, because I'm also a user of crypto.com, all the eKYC that has happened in crypto as well as fintech is now going into the traditional space. Okay, and it's all all the new all the all the new best practices that um, came out from crypto. Uh, including the, the, think, the thinking about using uh, CBDCs, which is inspired from blockchain, stable coins is also from the blockchain industry, going into traditional. So if we are influencing the traditional side, how can we say that traditional is going to be better than this? So it must, there must be a middle ground where you learn from ones that are innovating without any background. Yes, they don't have banking background. I, I understand that. But they also, because they don't have a banking background, they think things differently, which can also influence on the traditional side. And the traditional side also can bring experiences into the DeFi uh, um, industry as well. So then I, I believe the middle ground is the best and not one way or the other. What you've just said about uh, the crypto going into um, the you know, traditional banking. So even the best practices, um, in, um, in, in blockchain technology, it's there for banks to use for their traditional uh, banking transaction, banking services, or even core banking systems. And, and they're not using it. They're spending so much time still nursing their original core banking infrastructure. It's bizarre. Now, let me ask you this question, and it's a point blank question, right? Are, are China and, 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 and India, um, you know, blocking out uh, crypto entirely 
are they wrong? What would they be missing out on uh, going, you know, in the next few years? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any right or wrong. I think uh, regulators in each country, uh, you know, have a view on what makes sense uh, for, for their citizens and how they want to protect them from, from financial risk. I would say in India, it's a, there's some recent development and I don't think it's an outright ban from, from what I hear from our teams on the ground. Uh, it, it's a little bit more nuanced uh, and uh, some activities I think will be regulated. And I think that's the intention rather than just uh, you know, being left there or uh, outright ban. Uh, so I think it's more about uh, finding the right framework like we see, for example, in Singapore, I mean, this is a, one of the most progressive regulators that we've seen that has actually developed its own regulatory framework to cover, you know, DPTs or digital payment tokens, uh, those, those cryptocurrency. Uh, and I think some of the other countries want to replicate that and find what's the right framework uh, to regulate uh, these activities, whether they're on trading or lending and, and others. Um, so I think, you know, there's different cases, different approaches by, by regulators across the globe. I think in India, there's a lot of back and forth these days. What we see is a little bit more around finding the right regulatory framework to support um, the, um, the industry. In my view, like, for example, at the uh, FedEx meetings, and I know that uh, both China and India are also FedEx members. Uh, I mean, I, with the meetings that we, we had, um, I, the ones that were very active in those meetings are the ones that are um, have a very strong knowledge in terms of on the ground on what to do. At, um, it's in their own uh, in their own uh, uh, jurisdiction. So um, the the jurisdictions that we work very closely with, obviously the uh, U.S., Japan, uh, Singapore, uh, uh, Switzerland, as well. Many of them are participating very actively uh, in the meeting. So I do hope that the more and more of the uh, large countries also. Uh, participate in the virtual asset uh, meetings. That, that's number one. And uh, number two, if you look at uh, India's uh, current uh, proposed rules, in a way, it's very similar to what Japan uh, had. So they did not say outright ban. They are saying private tokens are not allowed, um, and the tokens uh, will need to uh, be approved and come up from the, uh, uh, the regulators themselves. Uh, so it's more like it's... Uh, it is starting it rather than the going back and forth with the Supreme Court back then. Um, but now it's starting to move in a way where it, it, I, I feel they are talking to the private sector very closely and then starting to open up when they um, understand more of uh, what's going on. But as, as I said, if uh, the larger countries participate in the international meetings on even on AML and all that, once they understand that, they should be much more uh, uh, nuanced and flexible in, uh, in having a good framework for uh, in their own jurisdictions with regards to crypto. The reason I ask this question is that in China, I see incredible energy uh, in building blockchain ecosystems and blockchain architecture. Everything from selling used cars to port authorities and so on. Uh, and many of these need a token in there. Uh, that uh, that can activate um, the user base, uh, especially if it's permissionless, right? Uh, and I see that to some extent, uh, many of them are, are held back uh, because of this blanket ban on crypto in, in, in China. Am I right to see it that way? Or is there another way to around it uh, that can benefit from uh, blockchain um, where there is a blanket ban on crypto? Do you think that uh, a country will be held back on 
broader areas like blockchain if they over-regulate or if they put out an outright ban? According to what CZ said in the Bloomberg New Forum, um, China is only banning the uh, and also payments in crypto. But other than that, they are very pro on many different sectors within blockchain, like creating blockchain ecosystems uh, and so on. In a way, they're supporting more closed loop systems, if, if what I am deducing from what, what I'm reading. Um, so there, there, again, there is really no right and wrong. It really depends on the um, agenda of that uh, particular country. If, uh, if, if China is trying to push there's uh, CBDC, then there are some things that they may need to uh, uh, forego in order to put focus on that. And th that's why maybe all these uh, different bands yet still trying to work with the private sector on how to um, make these agendas come true. And some like, uh, like uh, India, where they are starting to understand it more now, and yet the demand is there, they still need to find a way to uh, take advantage of this in a way that um, it doesn't overwhelm the amount of regulatory knowledge they only have, when things go wrong, they at least can still uh, con uh, control it. So it's regulators, uh, you know, overreacting and then and then pulling back when when they feel like they have uh, better control. Um, is that is that what you're seeing? Or? Yeah, uh, what I'm what I'm seeing is compared to five years ago, there seems to be less of a knee jerk reaction now. Back then, you will see uh, countries like uh, Thailand, you will ban one day and unban, and then ban again and unban, which loses mix the, um, the, the investor community lose confidence. But now you can see, after no understanding how it works, Thailand is also flourishing in terms of, uh, in terms of cryptos. So it's, I, I see what, what all these hap uh, things happening is because of the insufficient, the lack of knowledge. So there are already places where you can fill that gap, like working with international government, um, governmental entities like uh, FEDEF, which works with the private sector. Um, we're, we're now going towards that. And having less of these bad uh, knee-jerk reactions will, will help because a lot of jobs, especially, for example, Singapore now, is, has a lot of uh, jobs from the crypto sector. right? If you have a new sector that creates more jobs, I think that is what it's a very big incentive for governments to keep. I'm going to ask you a conceptual question, and because in there it's uh, a lot of uh, issues loaded in there. Is a CBDC a stable coin? A CBDC is a form of stable coin. Uh, it's a conceptual question, and I think Eric can help me answer. Are stable coins an important part of your business? Um, you know, mix uh, of what you have, what you do. I think stable coins play an important role in our ecosystem because it it allows. Uh, people to go back and forth between assets that are deemed more volatile uh, versus uh, assets that are deemed more stable, at least versus uh, fiat currency, if we don't account for, for inflation these days, which is pretty high. Um, and so they play a, a big role. It's also easier for people to understand and to use, uh, especially in the merchant use case, where they, they do need some stability uh, in terms of you know, what comes in and, and how they can project their revenues and, and, and all this forecast. So they, it, it's a big part of the industry, um, and, and it, it has a useful role in payments in particular, uh, and as a source of um, kind of stable place versus fiat uh, uh, globally. CBDCs are actually, it, it, you know, people have been working on it for quite some time, but in practice, there's very few countries that are live, uh, and, and probably none that are live globally, uh, uh, full scale within their own uh, market. So it's still very early. 
Uh, there's a lot of discussions, a lot of exploration, experiment uh, in many jurisdictions, but it, it's not really a, a live at scale concept. Uh, and CBDCs are not meant to be on blockchain per se. Uh, and by blockchain, I would mean a permissionless uh, and, and open source blockchain, where stable coins are today. Uh, so they will have, they will be in more closed loop environment. And we don't know yet whether they will have programmability, which is a very important feature in permissionless blockchain, where people can build all these new financial applications because they can program in, 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 with smart contracts and define these contra uh, contracts between uh, users without uh, intermediary and something that people can verify uh, publicly. Um, so I think th those are two different things. Uh, they do provide some form of stability versus a fiat currency, and, and they share that commonality. Uh, but the infrastructure they will be likely built on uh, is different. In fact, the infrastructure is, as you say, it's a closed loop. Therefore, um, the data stays with the regulator. Uh, and it's funny because if you're going to build applications around it, uh, you want the data to be in the system, right? accessible to the application developers. Is, is that what, I mean, am I right to think that way? For innovation to flourish, of course, if you have an uh, open source ecosystem, uh, you can see the, the pace of innovations is incredible. That, that's what we've seen in DeFi since especially summer of, of last year. You know, having the ability to iterate and improve very quickly on you know, what uh, people are building, it, it makes you know, a, a, a extremely uh, you know, a fertile ground for, for innovation and bringing value to, to individuals. Of course, in, in closed loop, uh, you know, closed source ecosystem, it's much harder to, to get more value and, and iterate. Uh, uh, that way, for sure. You didn't speak very much about NFT. You spoke about mm. it as a up and coming area. Uh, stable coins in NFT. NFTs uh, first. I think the, the, it started really with the with the art scene. Uh, so it really has a digital ownership of her art piece, uh, and that was kind of the the the, the, the original use case that, that we see. Now it's growing across multiple verticals. Whether it's music, whether it's a connectivity with a brand, a sports brand. You know, we've worked with UFC to, to connect their fans with the, the fighters, with the events that they're building. Uh, there is NFT being used in ticketing uh, to showcase your identity across multiple platforms. So it, it's super exciting space. We are trying to contribute as much as we can. Uh, we've built a platform for that. We're working with creators, with brands to see how they can better connect with their fans uh, and, and their users and bring them value with uh, it's fascinating. I think one point I will add is that NFTs also create new communities. As we've seen in the early days of crypto, uh, NFT, especially with the new avatar we call PFP type, uh, like uh, you know, CryptoPunk or you know, Bored Apes or even uh, the one we launched recently, Loaded Lions. Uh, it's fascinating to see how people connect and get together around these communities, create benefits and value and have a way to express themselves and, and create something that has never been done before. Um, so I feel NFTs have that community power uh, that can generate a, a lot of value. I am still confused as to why the media is confused with the definition of stable coins and CBDCs because they are two very, very different things, okay? So um, stable coins, um, I think first we need to understand why stable coins uh, came about. Um, more than five years ago, when many of the crypto companies came out, especially the exchanges, um, many of the trading pairs that they have in exchanges were usually like Bitcoin slash USD, 
uh, Ethereum slash USD and so on. And most of the operations um, rely on having real US dollars in the bank. That means your, your operations also require a bank account. But many of, uh, many of the banks, which were fearful of the industry, uh, started closing all these bank accounts of these crypto companies. You, when you do that, it's very disruptive for many of the, uh, um, uh, the service providers, the, the exchanges. So many of the entrepreneurs um, came up with this uh, concept called stable coins, where in a way the risk is offloaded uh, uh, to them. Uh, they have a huge bank account, simply speaking, uh, there's a lot of nuances in between, where supposedly having one US dollar in the bank will mint one stable coin. Okay, so one uh, uh, B, uh, Binance stablecoin BUSD uh, will have one dollar of US dollars in the bank account. Okay, so and then this way, it uh, reduces the risk on the companies because many of the exchanges can now run the exchanges without worrying of losing uh, the bank account because they don't need it. For example, Binance.com, uh, the entity itself uh, does not need a, um, not only Binance, lots of exchanges don't need a bank account to have the operations to go. Uh, exchanging to fiat is another, another question. So stable coins is, um, came up from there, but because of that, there's so many different use cases now. Now, the difference between stable coins and CBDC is, is huge, okay? One is that um, stable coins leverages on existing supply of the currency. So meaning if you are a stable coins holder, sorry, stable, stable coins issuer, you, take, you have liquid US dollars sitting in the bank account. Whereas a CBDC, according to the de definition of what uh, China has, um, it affects the actual money supply, the M0 supply. So for every CBDC that comes up, it actually factors into the whole money supply that the country has. Okay, so it's a very different thing. So if a um, uh, uh, stablecoin issuer screws up per se, it doesn't screw up the money supply. Uh, where CBDC, it does, and not only that, uh, there's a lot of um, po political uh, things you need to consider and how it's being done. So, for example, the Chinese one, um, they believe the model of being uh, transparent, uh, where all your transactions are being seen by the government and entities is the way to go. Whereas the Swiss one, they have a white paper that writes um, that they believe a private CBDC is important, where the um, Swiss bank would do a blind, um, blind signature, and, and then the AML and CFT uh, uh, processes are done by the intermediaries. At, just like the cash, they don't know where the where the where the, the CBDC has gone to. So that's why governments are still considering the different um, use cases. Uh, so um, it's it's very different, and uh, I don't know why the media is still trying to combine both uh, definitions in one. Actually, there are stable coins in many countries, many jurisdictions now, uh, and and Kenya, Singapore, uh, you know, and and so on, uh, where the regulator is thinking about, um, you know, uh, the the role of stable coins if it's already available. There is a question here: Can the crypto valuations be restricted and made less volatile by controlling their price fluctuations in cap? Uh, and 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 caller for for a given time uh, so uh, time frame so that uh, to make them more trusted the volatility of cryptos right now uh, how do you think it's going to play out uh, in the future 
maybe, maybe Eric first, uh, because uh, you you actually make money from the volatility. Uh, you know the 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 interest in 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 the in speculating on crypto. So do you, uh, at which point do you think volatility will uh, become more manageable uh, in crypto? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. I mean, as a you are on a nascent ASIN, ASIN, uh, class, you you want to have some volatility for the asset class to grow. I think it's a it's a feature. It, it's not a bug, but of course, it doesn't fit all the investors' profile out there uh, for sure. And the risk needs to be clearly you know declared and explained. Uh, but I think it's an important feature as the asset class is growing, and of course, as it matures, volatility will progressively go down. No doubt about it. Uh, but for sure, you know, related to the question, uh, I, I don't think anyone here wants to intervene and, and, and on prices. This is a market-driven uh, industry, so supply and demand makes the price. Um, but we do expect as time and as certain uh, cryptos also within that asset class are, are become more mature, that volatility will, will reduce. In fact, uh, you know, that's my interview with Chris Giancarlo, uh, who, as chairman of uh, CFTC, uh, introduced the whole idea of futures, right? Uh, and and he, in fact, he he actually launched the first futures exchange uh, for Bitcoin uh, against, uh, according to him, against uh, the advice of other uh, exchange players. Uh, so, do you see products like futures, um, you know, derivatives of like? Uh, of, uh, of, of crypto coming into the marketplace? Do you see uh, some of the liquidity providers uh, going into the derivative space? No, for sure. I mean, uh, as we've seen a traditional, traditional finance space, um, derivatives are very useful instruments, especially for institutions. Um, they are also helping uh, on the volatility or hedge against volatility, which is very important. Uh, and, and I think it's, very, it's great for the industry to progressively get to that level of sophistication. So we have more players participating. There's more ways for people to hedge and protect themselves. Uh, so I think it's, it's a good development. But of course, it is uh, even more regulated uh, type of instruments. Uh, and you know, for, for us, uh, for example, in the US this, uh, this week, we announced we acquired uh, two CFTC regulated uh, derivative platforms. And, and, and you know, we're going to be able to offer that, for example, to US customers. But the, the bar and the levels that is required uh, for people to offer derivatives at scale is much higher. And, and I'm welcoming uh, you know, uh, people in industry to, to take that regulated approach uh, to, to offer these services, especially to retail investors. Firstly, the US dollar itself, uh, since uh, the 1900s, has lost over 95% of its value. I just want to put that out first. So that's why the inflation story is is really a, a serious one trusting it is uh, is not really a relevant story it's more like how do you now protect from a capital perspective with regard regards to uh inflation right so um uh the the the, the thing in, in terms of trust it's really by looking at how the industry grows and over time when people see more of this um the, the trust starts building in as i mentioned that in the u.s the searches for, for Bitcoin already surpassed gold um, um, by quite a bit now. Uh, it definitely also has been affecting the price of uh, uh, gold as well. I have another question here. How's the gap between fiat and crypto going to be bridged efficiently? In, in my view, it, it's really dependent on what the market wants at that particular time. And uh, once acceptance is here, then you will see how crypto and the relationship between crypto and uh, fiat will uh, evolve. One example would be um, 
I did a, uh, a crypto startup many years ago. Um, uh, obviously, I was a huge Bitcoin fan and thought that Bitcoin was, you know, like 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 the the currency of choice. This was back in 2014, uh, but people uh, back then uh, were not ready. If you if you um, introduce the product that people aren't ready, then people uh, will not will not use it. Back then, we also were trying out to use the QR codes uh, uh, for for people to use because we see that um, we actually see that it will be become useful. And only until the pandemic these uh, these days, uh, these recent few years, then the behavior started to change. So it really depends on the time, um, and then the, what the market wants. The relationship between crypto and uh, fiat will evolve uh, together on how what the relationship is. It's not really up to what we what we say. Yeah, when Eric mentioned that you know they work with Visa to issue a crypto Visa card, uh, they're actually bridging that gap. And when we talked about stable coins and and CBDCs. That's another attempt at, at uh, bridging the gap. Uh, and there is a technology gap uh, as well as a macroeconomic gap uh, to be bridged. Uh, the technology gap is when a, 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 a CBDC looks like a crypto. Um, a, a, a macroeconomic gap is that um, uh, fiat money, uh, the way in which it absorbs inflation, uh, the question is, will crypto be able to uh, absorb inflation and create assets uh, that are that are viable in the long term going forward. So uh, there might be a winner and a loser eventually. Uh, and I, I think that regulators started with being very um, reactionary towards uh, crypto and then slowly they, they're enveloping their own ideas, uh, you know, um, uh, using crypto technology and, and whatever they're learning, uh, you know, from crypto. Here's a question for Eric. Crypto.com launched a blockchain called Kronos. What is the aim of this? Is it to offer more DeFi Game 5 products? Um, and what is Crypto.com doing to accelerate that? What do you think are the critical success factors of getting Kronos off the ground? We're investing heavily in infrastructure uh, in the blockchain space. We want to uh, build open source, permissionless, scalable blockchains um, for people to build upon, especially creators and, and developers, and create ecosystem around it. Um, so this is where we play really at the, at the infrastructure level. We're providing uh, a blockchain that is also um, environmentally friendly. Uh, so it, in terms of the impact on the environment, especially versus some of the, the proof of work blockchain out there. And we see Kronos as a place where people can build DeFi application, GameFi, NFTs. And we already have you know, 50 plus projects after a few weeks uh, that are being built upon it. Um, you know, a, a billion plus of TVL, um, you know, 4 million transactions. So it's, a, it's fascinating to see. Um, for us, for it to be successful, it needs to be open. We work with developers across the globe. We open source the code. We contribute uh, a, 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 from, from our perspective, we get inputs also from the community. Uh, and that's, I think, a very key success factor compared to some of the other players. It's really to, you know, give back, uh, open your code, let people participate. Uh, I think it's very critical. Um, and, and as mentioned at the beginning of the call, I think it's, it's a good wrap up as well. You know, GameFi is going to be super big. Um, we see Kronos as, uh, playing a super strong role there, uh, uh, but we'll have to build the interfaces for game developers to connect and use the blockchain technology very easily. And that's going to be quite, quite critical. Uh, last question to Anson. Uh, what's wrong with Binance? Uh, and why are all the regulators, uh, you know, up, uh, you know, looking for Binance? To, not that you can find CG anywhere. But uh, I want you to answer that question just as a wrap up. 
to give us a sense of what are some of the regulatory issues uh, that we are facing today? Uh, right or wrong, I don't think it's for me to answer. <laughs> because of the different business models uh, that's happening between the different uh, um, uh, exchanges, um, some of the regulators are not uh, are comfortable with it. But uh, I, I do see uh, from the AML uh, CT, uh, CFT um, uh, standpoint with uh, FedEx, the regulators are now gearing up uh, at least to show that they are doing something after many years, the last few years of not doing, not doing that, uh, that much. Um, so I think it's part of fintech and crypto to continue to, I won't use the web fight, continue to work with the regulators, okay, because engagement is key. Um, we, we've experienced this before. If regulators come down hard on the industry and when there's still a lot of demand, the only thing that happens is everything goes underground. And then the, the prediction of this is after a year later, you will have to open it up again. Okay, so it's important that um, companies like uh, Binance, I know they're working, working with regulators. Regulators also need to be patient to listen to both sides, right? Can, you cannot just do, uh, do things uh, one way. Thank you both very, very much. Just talking to both of you, I'm learning too. And I'm coming up with my own ideas uh, in terms of uh, how this whole uh, industry is going to take shape uh, and how crypto is going to change everything we do. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.